The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning. It is good to be with you. If you have a copy of the Bible, if you turn with me to Psalm 16. If you don't have a copy of the scripture, there's one available in a chair underneath you or close by you. Page 453 uh, in the chair Bible. The title of this message today is You Will Not Abandon My Soul. It is my prayer that God will take his word and encourage your heart today and bless your soul. And if you have yet to hope in Christ, it is my prayer that today you will turn to him and look to him as your only Lord and Savior. So out of reverence to the fact that this is the word of God, I invite you to stand as I read in its entirety the 16th Psalm. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the exalted ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oh, Father, we come now. And we plead that you would instruct us in your word. I pray for the weary soul in this room. I pray for the lost soul. I pray, O oh God, that you would open our eyes to see the wondrous things that are in your word. That you would minister to us through the power of the written word the preaching of the word, God, that you would cause us to see the path of life and that in your presence is fullness of joy. Oh God, may it be our prayer both now and as we conclude this message, preserve me, oh God, for in you I take refuge. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You be seated. Here's the main idea of this text. The Lord will keep, present tense, his people forever. It says a miktam of David. It probably has to do with the tune. There are other psalms that assign this same instruction at the beginning. Some have said it means a golden psalm. Here's what we do know. This psalm clearly points us to Christ. And because Christ has fulfilled this psalm, it is now applied to our lives 
as followers of Christ. We'll make this clearer as the sermon unfolds. This psalm is a song, a song of confident trust in God, by which the psalmist is saying, I'm able to live my life to the fullness because I know that I am gripped with a living hope, both in this life and beyond the grave, that God has me. This psalm teaches us to live in the here and now, but to live beyond the here and now in spite of difficulty and not to fear death as followers of Jesus. First thing I want us to see is that the Lord God alone provides refuge and good for his people. We'll spend the majority of our time here in the first six verses. We see that God himself, the Lord our God, is the source of refuge and good. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Preserve me could also be translated, watch over me. David is asking that God would watch over him with care and concern. The image here is of a shepherd. So this would be similar to the 23rd Psalm. That the Lord is our shepherd. He is preserving, watching over us with intense care and concern. This is the only request in the Psalm. This is the only thing David asks God for. And what's evident in this request and how the psalm unfolds, that David's in great distress as he writes, and he's addressing the Lord God of heaven to support him in the midst of his sufferings. This is a confidence psalm. It's not a confidence in self. It is a confidence in the Lord that in spite of the difficulty and the storms against him, he's not going to be shaken. So there's a twofold, it's a double request, if you will. It's preserve me now and preserve me in eternity. Hopefully we'll see this more clearly as we work through it. Verse two, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now, if you notice very carefully, if you're looking in your Bible, the first Lord is capital, all caps, L-O-R-D. That means Yahweh or the proper name of God. I say to the Lord God, you are my Lord or my master. He's saying to the Lord of the universe, the Lord God himself, you are in charge. Now, I'm not belittling the word here, but let's just make sure we lean into this and get the meaning. Duh. I, I, I think this is hard for some of us to grasp because we have language like this circulating the church. I've made Jesus Lord. You didn't make him anything. He is Lord. And here's the best thing for your life is to come to the point that you acknowledge, Lord, you're my Lord. I heard it again this week, so let me confront it. Well, you know, I have Jesus as my Savior. I hadn't yet made him Lord. Eh. That's not biblical Christianity. The Lord Jesus Christ said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Why? Because I'm Lord. Can't have half of Jesus. He's either your Lord and your Savior, or he's neither. And we have to remind ourselves constantly as followers of Christ who Christ is and who we are. He's Lord, we're not. 
We've been bought with a price. We are not our own. And we understand this, the end of verse two, I have no good apart from you. Ralph Davis says, you could translate this phrase, you're all the good I need. Every good and perfect gift, James says, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is the all-sufficient. God has need of nothing. We are destitute of any goodness and we contribute nothing to ourselves and nothing to our salvation. It is impossible for any of us in this room or anyone period in all of humanity to bring God under obligation or to put God in debt. God is not made happy by us. We are made happy by him. He can do without us, but we cannot do without him. He is our only good. And as David says here, I, we have no good apart from him. It is all of his grace. Paul describes it this way to the Corinthian believers. And God is able to make all grace abound to you all grace, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So anything good that comes from us as believers comes from the all-sufficient God who at all times in all ways supplies through us. Which leads David to verse three, a shared refuge in good. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So as you flow out of verse two, you flow into verse three. And he's saying this, if you delight in God, then you delight in all people who delight in God. They're your people. It's a biblical axiom. First John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 19 in 1 John 4. We love because he first... Do you get this? We love each other because Christ first loved us. The love of Christ has compelled our hearts and transformed our lives to take our attention off of ourselves and turn our attention toward Christ. And as we turn our attention to Christ, here's what we realize. He's turned others' attention to Christ, and these are the people whom we love. We love one another. Now, there's another group of people that David here is saying, I distance myself from, <clears throat> and that is the sorrow of those who look elsewhere. Verse 4, the sorrow of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Some of the things people do in the name of religion are incredible and horrendous. And we could talk about those things that pagan religions practice. <clears throat> but I think we need to be very specific in what David means here. If you study the Old Testament at all, here's what you'll find out. When things got difficult or when they got really good, 
one of those two extremes, and things got really good or really difficult for God's people, they started adopting the pagan religions around them. They started bringing in the religious practices of the pagans into how they were practicing. And here's what happened. It, it led to sorrow and difficulty for God's people that was heaped on them. So David says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So if you find yourself in difficulty and you try to adopt some kind of pagan religion, like I had this lady asked me one time, she said, is it true if you bury a statue of, of Jesus in your backyard, you can sell your house? I said, no. We're really having a hard time selling the house. What can I do? Sell your house. Pray and ask God to sell your house. And there's, there's no religious right to do. Folks, let's just be honest. We drag these kind of things. We adopt these things. Luther, Martin Luther was, was a monk in the Catholic church and he did his pilgrimage to Rome and he, he, he climbed the Scala Sancta, which is the holy stairs in Rome, which the story is they're the steps that Jesus stood on in front of Pilate and they brought him to Rome. So every good pilgrim would go to Rome and and you climb these steps on your knees one at a time. And in each step, you say the Lord's Prayer and you kiss the step and you proceed up. And when you get to the top, you're forgiven. So if you want forgiveness, this is what you do. Well, Luther got to the top and he stood up and he looked around at all the bleeding knees and the pleading people around him. And he said, there's nothing any different. Something's wrong here. God used that moment to begin to open Luther's eyes to these pagan practices that had been drugged into what was being called the Christian faith. And through the study of the New Testament, he saw faith alone by grace alone in Christ alone, and he was saved. Brothers and sisters, when you try to adopt other things, you just heap sorrow on yourself. The gospel is the good news is that we don't seek salvation anywhere else. If we do, it's great expense. What we see is that the one great sacrifice has been offered by Christ on the altar of the cross and it is finished. And because of that, when we trust in Christ, we have a sure and beautiful inheritance. Verse five, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, what's interesting here is this language sounds very similar to when the children of Israel occupied Canaan. God gave them a portion, a lot, boundary lines, an inheritance. So here's what he's saying. It's not the things that God has given us. Who's the portion? Who's the cup? Read verse five carefully. Who is it? It's the Lord. It's not what the Lord has given us. It is that the Lord has given us himself. He is our portion. He is the sufficient supply of all we need. He is our joy, our contentment. And he wants us as his followers to find our satisfaction in him. Yes, he gives good gifts. He wants us to enjoy those good gifts he gives us, but he wants us to enjoy them as we realize they came from him, the giver. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I want you to turn to 
the first chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one, where this language of inheritance comes up again. Ephesians one. In him, that is in Christ, we have obtained. So if you're in Christ, here's what you have. An inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, that is the fullness of our inheritance to the praise of his glory. We have a beautiful inheritance and we have the guarantee of that inheritance as followers of Jesus that the Holy Spirit resides within us. He is the guarantee, the promise, the down payment, if you will, of that which God has supplied for his people. And it is a sure and it is a beautiful inheritance. How do we know this? How do we know this? This leaves my second point. Because the Lord God alone rightly instructs his people. Verse seven, I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night also my heart instructs me. So let, 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 me, let me just confront some thinking here for a minute. <clears throat> Have you ever noticed, those of you who've been coming to Parkwood very long, that I don't stand up and say, I got a word from, you, from God for you today. What do I say? I say, let's turn in our Bibles and let's read the word of God. In other words, I'm not making this stuff up. I didn't have some vision in the middle of the night. I read and studied my Bible. I have a novel idea from you, for you. You want to know what God said? Read your Bible. God has clearly and rightly instructed his people. He has counseled his people. The way we can have assurance, the way that we can have confidence, the way we have joy is we see and receive from the word of the Lord. This is how the Psalms began. Blessed is the man who does not sit in the, uh, uh, who does not, oh man, my brain went blank. I've, I'm not gonna butcher it. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of the scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. God has instructed us in his word and it is to be placed in our minds and in our hearts. Psalm 42, eight, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me. A prayer to God, the God of my life. So we experience the joy of knowing the Lord through his word that feeds and nourishes our souls. And as we hide it in our hearts and our minds, it continually comes back to us. It's expressed through song. It's brought back to the Lord in prayer. It comforts our hearts and reminds us we are in his care and we are in his keeping because it is the Lord God alone who keeps his people forever. Verse eight. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. So here's what David's saying. In the front of my mind, what I'm putting right in front of me is the Lord. And I'm reminding myself that the Lord is ever with me. He is at my right hand. That does not mean equality in any stretch of the imagination, 
Right hand means a, a place of support. God is there to help. And because God is with me and before me, I shall not be shaken. Now here's the implication. David's life is at, at risk here. And he's saying, even if I lose my life, I'm not gonna be moved. I'm not gonna be shaken. Verse nine, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So even in the suffering in the face of death, he says, my heart is glad. He rejoices with all that is in him because he knows that whether he lives or whether he dies, he is in the secure hands of God. My flesh dwells secure. God has me. Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You explain the Bible with the Bible, friends, and sometimes it's absolutely and completely overt. So turn to Acts chapter two with me. In Acts chapter two, you have the very first sermon recorded in the New Testament church. Peter stands at the day of Pentecost and says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And did you hear what he said? It was not possible for him to be held by it. Now he does the first exposition in the New Testament church. Would you like to guess what passage he uses for the first New Testament sermon? Psalm 16. Now follow his argument here. David says concerning who? Him. So let's just clear this up. Everybody look up here. Who is David talking about in Psalm 16? Himself, he's talking about Jesus Christ. Now watch what he says. I saw the Lord always before me is at my right hand I shall, I may, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also dwell in hope and you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me glad full of gladness with your presence. That's Psalm 16, eight through 11. Now he makes the argument. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. All right, so let's pause right here. Here's what he's saying. David's rotten over there in his tomb. We can go uncovered. There's maybe some bones left there, but so David's not talking about himself. So who is he talking about? Being therefore a prophet. So David is prophesying here in Psalm 16, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, 
that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. The argument of Peter that day is that Christ is risen from the dead. And he's saying that it is clear from this Old Testament prophecy that Psalm 16 was talking about Jesus Christ. So let's reread it and let's think about it as Jesus saying it, not David, not even me, not even you. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Think of Hebrews 12, one and two, for the joy set before him and endured the cross. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Brothers and sisters, the body of Jesus did not decay. The argument of Acts chapter two is that the resurrection of Christ is the ground for our confidence and it is the source of our joy. That is what Psalm 16 is teaching us. And though we as believers may be buried in the ground, we will see a resurrection from the grave and a glorification into the likeness of Christ. Simply stated, the believer's relationship with the Lord our God does not end at death. This is quoting Spurgeon. I wish I could speak and preach like this. This is noble encouragement to all the saints. Die they must, but rise they shall. And though in their case they shall see corruption, that is your body's gonna rot, they shall rise to everlasting life. Christ's resurrection is the cause, the earnest, the guarantee, the embling of the rising of all of his people. Let them, let God's people therefore go to their graves as to their beds. And may they rest their flesh on a clod of dirt as if it was their pillow, were their pillow. For one day, they will get up. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Here's what's fascinating about the word life in the Hebrew. It's plural. And this sends scholars into orbit. I think it's pretty simple. I didn't come up with this. I'll help you. When you think about life or eternal life, you often think only about heaven. And we as Christians think right through the resurrection from the dead. That Christ is gonna raise our bodies from the grave and glorify us, make us, into the image of Jesus forever and ever. That there is life. There is the resurrection and eternal life in the presence of God forever. So back to Spurgeon. The soul of the believer has joy without mixture, pleasure without number, fullness without want, constancy without interruption, and perpetuity without end. So I ask you the question this morning. Am I trusting the Lord God alone to keep me now and forever? Richard Baxter, a preacher many years ago said, I preach as a dying man to dying men 
as if I will never preach again. That sums up my life. Even before I read Baxter's quote, you put me in front of five or 500, it doesn't matter. I look out and I see souls. Not people, whether or not you're going to tell me the sermon was good, that's immaterial to me. I see eternal souls in front of me. You will see God, all of you. And the question is, is what before you life or death? Not physical death, but eternal death or eternal life. None of you in this room, no human being is ready to live until they're first ready to die. When we face the reality of death with a living faith in Jesus Christ, we are prepared to live a bold and courageous life, even in the face of difficulty. 2 Timothy chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 1. Now, any high school kids in the room, I just want you to know, guys, I'm not smart enough to put camp and Sunday sermon together. God in his sovereignty put these two things together in the same week. It wasn't until about Tuesday night when I was studying for the Sunday sermon that I realized that what I was preaching at camp was completely weaved together with what I'd be preaching Sunday. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Now let's put this in context. The old war horse Paul who suffered tremendously for the gospel is in jail. He, he thinks his life's about over. He tells Timothy, come see me before winter. He, think, he thinks he's not going to make it. But he says to Timothy, Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind or self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That is the proclamation, without him using the words, of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. For which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard into that day what has been entrusted to me. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Why? For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. When we trust our souls unto Christ now and forever, it grants us courage 
It is all of his grace. It is none of our doing. Our hope is in his resurrection, that he will guard me, that he will guard us now, and he will continue to guard us until that day, the day when we stand before the Lord in the righteousness of Christ, clothed in him. The theme of camp this week was real courage. In just a few sentences, I taught the young people that Christ is the warrior. That Christ is the warrior who went before us, who conquered sin and death. He did what we could not do. And that he has saved us, not by anything that we have done, but by his work on the cross and through the resurrection. Therefore, he has called us to a gospel-centered courage, which I defined as the resolve to live as a follower and disciple of Christ with strength, daring, and confidence. Why? Because we have nothing to fear. Nothing. If we have entrusted it all to the one who has conquered death. If we trust our souls unto him, he will guard us. He will preserve us. He will keep us until that day. That's not just when I die. That means he's got me. And if you're in Christ, he's got you right now. He will never, ever leave you nor forsake you. Never. And in this life and in the life to come, here's what he will do. He will make known to us the path of life. And his presence now and forever is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forever and forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we bow together in your presence, I plead on behalf of men and women in this room who are looking somewhere else to salvation or trying to add to the good news of Christ some kind of trick or method to get them to God. May they be confronted that it is by grace alone, through faith alone that we are saved. That any good thing is from you, not from us. And for all who have trusted in Christ, I pray now for the sweet rest of salvation to pour over the souls of brothers and sisters. Regardless of what they're facing in their life, regardless of the weariness or the difficulty or the pain, may we be reminded that you have us. And not only do you hear, you heed the prayer. Preserve us, O God. For you, you are a refuge. Lord, convict those who are looking elsewhere to turn to you. And for those who are trusting and resting in Christ, may the fullness of their joy spill out now together as they rejoice in Jesus, in whom there are pleasures forevermore, in whom we will rejoice forever and ever. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.